This is Music Ed Amplified. Hey everyone, how is it going? You have landed at the Music Ed Amplified podcast, where we talk about the real life of music educators and all its ups and downs. We talk about issues of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion along the way. I try to keep things very real and probably way more cynical than they need to be. And with that in mind, it's about to get uber real. I am tired. The word retire has come across my brain way too many times in the past week. I want to be honest, I feel professionally undervalued and overworked and completely misunderstood by everyone except other teachers. I get angry when I hear the public saying untrue things about our profession. And I laugh and cry at the same time at the fact that one year ago we were the conquering heroes and now we are suddenly villains who don't do enough, don't care enough, don't risk enough. This year, I'm finding, is taking its toll on me now more than ever. I saw a post on the Teacher Goals Twitter account that just encapsulates the past year so well for me. It said, I'm doing too much and not enough. Most of us, I'm guessing, are facing a push and pull that would drive anyone to distraction. So what's the answer? I'm not sure. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and ask God to help me keep my focus on what is true and what is important, because there are too many voices in my head trying to tell me that I need to stay at work longer, that I should be thankful that I even have a job, that I should complain less about being pivoted back and forth between teaching modes, and that, if necessary, I should spend time at home working on school things. And even though I didn't get a budget this year, I should spend my own money because that's what good teachers do when they really care about students. And mostly, there are voices trying to tell me that no matter what, nothing I do is really good enough, even though I am teaching in a literal pandemic. So I purpose to only listen to the voices that matter and that I trust. As a Christian, I will lean fully on and into my faith. And I will look to my family and my small circle of trusted friends for grace and guidance as I constantly speak the truth to myself. This is an incredibly difficult time, and I am doing the best I can. And as a teacher, it's the hardest chapter of my career. But I am so much more than a teacher. I'm a human being with a finite amount of time on earth and someone who needs balance. So no matter what they throw at me, and trust me, we all know that there is a lot of nonsense being thrown at us, I'm going to do my best within reason. Did you hear that? Within reason. I'm not going to work myself into a frenzy because I feel guilty, all at the risk of my physical and mental health. I'll do the best job I can and forgive myself when I don't, and I will slog through this situation, accepting the high points and the low points, while I look forward to the future when things become more familiar and more recognizable. And for you guys out there, you have to do what works best in your particular situation. Does it give you more peace to work harder? Then do that without guilt. Are you healthier if you rely more on YouTube this year than normal, or leave school 15 minutes after the bell, or both? Then do that without guilt. Cut yourself a huge break and be easy on yourself. And please remind me that I said all this when you see me freaking out. 
Dr. Lanika Batiste is assistant professor of music education at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where she teaches elementary, general, and middle school choral methods and graduate courses in music ed. She has presented several papers and sessions at local, national, and international conferences and symposia, and is a frequent clinician and guest conductor for elementary, middle school, and community choirs. I hope you'll take some time to look at Dr. Batiste's bio on our episode page because it is fascinating and includes something about her recent time completing a Fulbright Fellowship in Recife, Brazil. I recently was able to take an eye-opening and inspirational day-long workshop with Dr. Batiste on culturally responsive teaching and knew I had to ask her to be a guest on the podcast. So let's listen in. Dr. Lanika Batiste, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to have you um, here. I want to just kick it off right off the bat with something that I've come across. And I realized when I was growing up, I had this mentality. And that is about the issue of colorblindness. So I know that even today, there is a feeling amongst teachers that when you're dealing with issues of racism and equity, the answer is colorblindness in the classroom. In other words, this mentality that is like, I treat all my kids the same. And like you'll even hear, you know, I don't care if they're purple, if they're polka dotted. Um, Why is this concept of colorblindness potentially harmful to our students? Um, And also, I'm wondering, like, why are people so, why do they fight so much about this idea and feel so much pride in it? And how can we confront it and fight against it? I think colorblindness has been championed as a way to give you the disposition needed to treat all students well. Um, That doesn't really work because if we're treating students all quote unquote equally, then we're not treating them equitably. For instance, if you have one student that needs water and another student that needs milk, and you say, I'm treating all of my students equally and you give all the students water, then the student that needs water gets what they need, but the student that does not get milk still doesn't have what they need Hmm. You can't look at a student or know a student's ethnicity and know all there is to know about the student. There are so many other things that impact someone's identity. You can think about the area of the country they live in. You can think about SES. You can think about education in the family. You can think of religious background. There are, and even those aren't going to give you a full picture of who the student is. Um, Students' identities are individual and intersectional. Having said that, There are certain things that students, depending on their level of affiliation with their ethnic group, may have some ways of thinking, may have some values, uh, may have some things that you can use to connect with them. There may be music, there may not be music, but understanding that and not erasing that is a more effective way of connecting Mm -hmm. with students than denying that differences exist. I think that for some people, when we think, when they think of differences when it comes to race or ethnicity, there's an automatic 
hierarchy that is that they place on race and ethnicity. And because of that automatic hierarchy, they feel that it's best to just not see it. I think it is better to challenge those hierarchies that we have set up in our head. I don't think you can really reach students if you can't see them. I would not want to be a student in a class where I'm not seen. Right. And my ethnicity is a part of who I am. Even as an African-American woman, the tone of my skin impacts my experience. I don't want any of those things to be erased. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be affirmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going into that, I believe can probably be uncomfortable for some people because it means acknowledging some things that have been in place for with us for a long time, things that we may not have challenged, things that make us feel vulnerable or exposed. But I think that if we truly value connecting with students in meaningful ways, we have to be willing to do this. So it's interesting as you say that, I don't know that I ever thought about it like this and this is not your perspective, it's mine as you as you speak, I think really saying that you're colorblind and you treat everybody the same to me seems like a lazy way <laughs> to look at the students who are there with you. Well, I frequently heard I don't see color or and I treat all of my students the same. And I understand that or I believe that it's coming from a good place that um, I don't, I think it would be very difficult to live in the United States and not have heard or seen stereotypical images or heard off color jokes uh, about people who you don't share the same ethnic background. And those things have a way of becoming a part of us, whether we see them, whether we acknowledge them or not. And those things can be harmful. And as a way to get around those, then we just say, I don't see them. So I believe that it's coming from a good place, but I, I know that it is not, it's not good for yeah. our students. It again, yeah. it erases our students' experiences. And as we, but also in, in conversation, sometimes we're conditioned not to say things. It's as if even saying, um, this person is African-American is a bad thing. Or, right. you know, it's, it's, it seems like we have just cut out those conversations hmm. to, and we've avoided them. And it has not been, it has not served us well. There is a wound in our country that has to heal. And the ways that we have addressed that healing process have not been effective. I remember caring for a person who had a surgery and they had an open wound. And the doctor told me, you have to pack it every day because it has to heal from the inside out. And it was a bad wound and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and so, not a pleasant experience. So I said, um, so what happens if it doesn't heal from right. the inside out? If I don't do this every day? And the doctor said, uh, the outside will close, but the inside will still be open and the wound can reopen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the second wound is worse than the first. And I think in our country, we have to 
we cannot cover over the wounds of our history. We can't just let the skin close over the top and saying, I don't see this is one way of doing that. What will happen is what we have seen to a degree in our country recently, that the wound will reopen and it can be worse than the first. Yeah. And uh, if you're willing to answer this, for teachers out there, and I, I know they're out there, who have, as I said earlier, you know, kind of prided themselves, prided themselves. And what you said, I think is true, because I know I'm just putting it to my experience. I felt good about saying things like, I don't see, you know, every, ki- every kid is the same. I don't see color. What is, what is an antidote? What are some first steps for a person who's like, I thought it was good to be like this, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, are there kind of practical things you could suggest or? We can't see what we can't see. And the environment that we are in makes it difficult sometimes to see ourselves. And if we can't see ourselves and we can't, it's, it's difficult to really assess how the things we're doing are, could potentially harm others. So I think the first thing we need to do is have a period of self-reflection. Really, really look inside and reflect on our values, our beliefs, Think about how those things come out in our actions and really think about who is best served by our pedagogy. Really think about that in honest ways. You don't have to share that with anybody, but you have to do that. We need to be in a constant state of reflection on our practice. Sometimes videoing yourself teaching and going back and looking at it, you'll see things that you didn't even realize were happening at the time. I think going back to, I don't see color, or I I think it would be better to say, I value all students the same, rather than I don't see Hmm. color. Because valuing all students the same means that there are certain things that students will need, caring for students, rather than just caring about them. Um, We'll have tools to care for students if we value them all the same and we realize that they will need different things. Yeah, I really, um, I think your initial analogy about the water and the milk um, is one that for me is very powerful. This idea of what is equal versus what is equitable. And I love what you just said. You know, we value every student. So for example, I might you know, if I have five students in front of me and I value their safety, each one has a unique need and, and meeting those needs will require different things. Is that kind of what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. Each student is going to need something different. There are, certain, there are certain modes of communication that will work for students, that won't work for other students. There are certain pedagogical approaches that will speak to a student, to speak to one, maybe a group of students, that may not be effective for another group of Mm. students. But if we refuse to see that or to see how anything might be embedded in, um, in, might relate to cultural background, we're missing opportunities there. And, And these are things that I'm thinking about that I did in my own practice as a teacher. And where I was teaching, I was teaching all African American students 
but I had this mindset when I came in that had been uh, nurtured throughout my um, my time in K-12 education that had been reinforced during my studies that really privileged Western modes of thought, Western musicality, Western modes of transmitting music, Western ways of expressing musicality. And I went into the classroom and I'm African-American. All of my students were African-American and there was a huge disconnect. I really had to re-examine. I had to look at myself. I had to think these students are bringing a lot of musicality to the table. They are very strong musicians and everything that they're bringing in here, I'm devaluing by saying, you can't learn music that way. You have to learn it this way. You can't sing music that way. You have to sing it within only these bounds. This is only what's going to be done in this classroom. That wasn't fair to them. It just wasn't right. And it wasn't good teaching. It wasn't connecting. And it wasn't until I broke down that wall. And it wasn't something that I just had an epiphany and decided to do. Right. I had to do it. I was, I was drowned. Right. You I was know. drowning. Oh. Um, I had to also rethink what the goals of my music program were and why those goals were established. You know, since I was five years old, I'd been playing the piano and I was a musician and I loved doing the piano competitions and I loved being in choirs and I loved traveling and I loved that. As a teacher, I had to stop thinking about myself and how I would be viewed as a result of my program. If my program looks this way, then everyone's going to think I'm this amazing teacher. And if my students do this, then everyone's going to look at me and say, what a wonderful teacher she is. Oh, that's cares? <laughs> right. <laughs> that is not what I initially said I went into teaching to do. I wanted to connect with students. I wanted students to have meaningful musical experiences. But in my mind, that had to happen the way that it happened for me. I was in a mm. different time. I was with a different group of students. I was in a different context. These students needed something different. But in order to really reach the students and foster musical experiences that would give them those, well, to, to create experiences that would give them that meaningful connection to music, I had to take my ego out of the equation and really see the students, really connect with them. I had to reflect on what I was doing. I had to reflect on why I was doing it. And that's when the world started opening up for that, those real connections with students. That's when I started to see students develop individually. That's when students started to come to me and say, look, I found this on the internet. This is, look, I love this. Can we write the choir? That's when I had students come back and say, I'm so excited about this. I decided to start doing dance. And so now I'm going to be doing musical theater. Or that's when I had students say, hey, when I graduate, I want to go on a tour with this choir, or I want to pursue this career. And now these students are doing so many things that when we talk, they remember those musical experiences as one of the first times that they connected with their musicality and they were affirmed mm. and they were able to express that musicality. Now, I wasn't the teacher that everyone looked at and said, oh, you, you, are, you have this program that we're going to look at you as being amazing. But my students, my students got what they needed from that program. And that, yeah. that was the most important thing. Yeah. And I think when you talk about taking your ego out, that's huge for a teacher 
teaching anything to anyone. And so I hope that, you know, people who are listening will hear this because I was a person, again, who came to it from like, this is my classroom. This is how it's going to be. This is, you know, I made students into one cog in a wheel, like in, in this machine of my classroom. And I realized I'm not doing what I said I wanted to do, which is connect with students and inspire them to do things that they have inherently inside them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah of course you know what I mean, because you just said that. <laughs> the things that inspired you may not be the same things that inspired Right, right, right. I mean, that's, that's what's hard. And I think, again, I'm just speaking for myself, the lazy way, because people who have listened to this podcast have heard me say I'm lazy, is, you know, everybody thinks like me, everybody act like me, because it's just simpler that way. But what you did is an inspiration because it is, I'm taking myself out of this equation in as much as you don't have to do what I did. You know, you have to do what will spark you. And that takes work. That's a lot of work, as I know you know. Yes. (laughs) You know? And it's like, but what you're saying about seeing these kids, connecting with these kids, it's really the only thing that's going to break through with students. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's how things break through with us as humans, you know? And so I I wanted to talk to you about, I, I attended a workshop that you did not that long ago on culturally responsive teaching, which everybody should go out and take (laughs) because it was really good. And I was also thinking um, you sang and danced a little bit. You were, you were doing. (laughs) So I was thinking back on it. I'm like, Oh, that's right. She was doing like a step routine for us. (laughs) So it it was really good. And I'm going to just cop to this. I, do I have um, this stack of books that I'm working through for my, you know, neuroscience research. One of them is about culturally responsive teaching. <laughs> it looks just like what you're holding up right now. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to take this um, workshop and I need to just learn something about what this is because I'm hearing it. Um, hearing about it, it's gaining footing in the profession. But for those who aren't really familiar with it, can you offer some kind of like brief overview of culturally responsive teaching and and what value you think it brings to the table for students and for teachers and why somebody should go to a workshop with you, which I'm going to encourage you to promote because it was just so good. Culturally responsive teaching centers the culture of the students in instruction. Often we come into the classroom with methods and with ideas about what is going to work. And those may not have been developed in a context that's even remotely similar to what our students are experiencing today. Culturally responsive teaching centers the uh, students' frames of reference, centers students' funds of knowledge, and builds pedagogy from there. It's about connecting with students, affirming students, empowering students. Therefore, our programs may not look like traditional models, but at the end, the goals are the same. 
Uh, there is a beautiful quote from Gary Howard that I really like. It says, culturally responsive teaching is teaching and leading in such a way that more of our students across more of their differences are engaging at deeper levels and achieving at higher levels more of the time without giving up who they are. Wow. I want to talk about a quote that uh, you shared that really resonated resonated with me. So I'll just read it first. The ethnicity of the teacher is not the most compelling factor in culturally responsive teaching for ethnically diverse students. Rather, it is teachers' knowledge base and positive attitudes about cultural diversity, as well as their ability to effectively teach diverse students' contributions, experiences, and perspectives. Um, do you mind expounding on this a bit? Be- for me, the big thing was that idea of the ethnicity of the teacher is not what's most important. Right. Now, I do not want to devalue the idea that having shared ethnic background can contribute positively to the classroom experience. There are certain things that you can draw on if there are some things you share in your ways of thinking in in celebrations of things on the surface level and things on the deeper level that that can inform your teaching that will connect with students that you may already know if you share the same ethnic background as students. However, being a culturally responsive teacher, developing your knowledge, constantly seeking to learn and understand your students, their community, their ways of thinking, their shared values, uh, continuing to develop your ability to be a culturally responsive teacher is more important. Simply because, as I said, I went into the classroom not being very culturally responsive. It's I want to reject the idea that just because you share a similar ethnic background, you automatically are going to know how to incorporate these principles into your teaching. There are some people who may, but there are many who don't. And we right. have to, especially when you go through a process of training that may not really nurture that part of your musicality or may not really speak to those connections and the powerful ways they can be made. This is a process, becoming more culturally responsive is something that um, all teachers can do, even if you share the same ethnic background as your students. Hmm. So no, it is not, it is, it can give you a very good Um, base from which to build strong connections with students. But that is not, that's not the most compelling. And it's not a given. It's not a given. And it it has to deal with your understanding of students, your knowledge and your dispositions, your ability to connect with students, your ability to care for students, to not overlook individual needs, to understand to hold your students to high standards and then everyone take responsibility for getting there uh, and being able to define, to define what high standards are. What does that mean for your classroom? Does it take who your students are into consideration? Do you value the what the students are bringing to the table or are you dismissing it? So a teachers of any background can be culturally responsive. Um, I asked this question recently in an interview with somebody who's an ORF teacher. And I said, you know, what would be the difference between, you know, if I walk into one class and I walk into another class, what would be the distinctive in the ORF class versus 
I don't know, a Kodai class, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to answer this. If I walk into a classroom where it's a person who says, I'm, I'm colorblind, you know, all my students mean the same thing to me. They all, um, they're all, I don't see any difference between them versus a teacher who's working hard to become or be a culturally responsive teacher. Are there any practical things you can think of, differentials that you would notice if you walked into either one? And I'm, I'm asking this for people like me who just aren't very familiar with culturally responsive teaching. What is a practical thing that's different? Uh, I think you, you will probably see the manifestation of some things that are happening on a deeper level. So you may mm -hmm. see that the teacher is very engaged with the students and that the students are also engaged. You can see that the students, what might be more willing to respond, might be more willing to participate. Uh, you may see that there are materials around the room that reflect not only ethnic diversity, but also multiple ways of being musical in, in the classroom. Um, multiple genres are represented. Um, you may see that, um, you may see the students participating in music in ways that speaks more, that speak more to um, ways that they're musical outside of the classroom. But that means that the teacher will have a knowledge of right. that the student's musicality outside of there. It would be very difficult to say that it's going to look one specific way because sure. you know, it's going to be contextual. But right, you right. may have community musicians that are represented in the classroom. You may have students who are from musical families or who are musical outside of the classroom having some of their work displayed or a flyer from this program. You may have this, you will see that the students are expressing musicality not just in ways that were predetermined or even just mm -hmm. expressing themselves in predetermined ways, but they feel affirmed. They feel um, they're willing to say things that are not on the list of correct answers. It's very, going back to the colorblindness, it's very difficult to acknowledge the experiences of your students if you don't want to see their positionality. There are things that are we are in a very charged environment right now. <laughs> yes. And this impacts students differently. If you happen to see things that are happening, if you, you think about George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, and you're seeing these images on television all the time, and Breonna Taylor, it, everyone in your family looks like mm -hmm the people who are constantly being, uh, who, are, who are at risk of being killed by right. the people who are supposed to protect you, you are going to receive that a lot differently from someone who's not African-American. But if you don't see color, then you are missing powerful opportunities to connect with your students. Who wants to open up to, uh, so, to someone who won't even see them? because they're afraid to acknowledge their experience. I mean, it might make it comfortable for the teacher in that moment, but that's a reality that that student steps out of that classroom to every day and is likely experiencing in your classroom in ways that you won't see because you won't see them. Yeah, I mean, it's you know going back to what you were talking about with a wound, um, you know, wound care is 
difficult. You know, um, you have to be consistent and constant. It's uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, whether you're the person being treated or the person treating. Yes. Uh, but as you said, if we don't do the work, this wound cannot cannot be healed truly. And you're just getting that Band-Aid. Um, and when it rips, I can speak from experience, you know, a, a ripped wound is torturous. And I think you're, I mean, of course you're right. That's what's happening. And it's, it's, I think, this is, it's egregious to act like it's not happening to the students, mm -hmm. you know, that they're not absorbing everything that's happening. Yeah. Well, I think that the dispositions that teachers have should have, including reflexivity, critical consciousness, social agency, and this, these are things I'm pulling from Abril and Robinson, 2013, 2019. I think those are important for all teachers to develop. Even though culturally responsive teaching, multicultural education might have been developed to work with students who are marginalized. These types of ideas, teachers must be aware of them. You cannot isolate your students or you should not isolate your students from experiences simply because the people that they may be interacting with in the future aren't present in your rooms. The brunt of eradicating or addressing in, mean, in transformative ways, the brunt of that responsibility should not be on the shoulders of the people who are experiencing it. And if we don't value, if we don't value developing those skills in our students, then we are contributing to the problem. I think it's very difficult to look at everything that's happening in our society and pretend that it doesn't exist. But it is easier for us to feel that we are not implicated in things because we have seen so many images from enslavement. We've seen so many images and heard so many stories from the civil rights movement with Emmett Till, with, um, with four little girls. We've, we've seen all of these things happen. We've seen uh, Selma everything that happened there, people being beaten at lunch counters. And we think those things are horrible. I would never engage in that. I would never do that. And so I don't, I'm not a part of this. I'm not, I don't have racism in me. I don't have prejudice in me. I don't have bias. These aren't things that I need to work on. But looking simply at extreme forms of something that happens every day can make you feel good, but it <laughs> continues a system that is systemic racism, inequality. It continues because we're not examining the everyday ways we perpetuate the system. Hmm. So this is the work it's time for in education, white teachers, to take this work on, to do this work in ourselves. <laughs> I think, I, I, like I said, I don't think that the brunt of the responsibility should be on those who are marginalized. I do think that our voices should be heard. I think our voices should be valued. And I think that just as in any time, 
when real change has happened, we join hands and we work together. And I, I also think because it's so much a part of our society in ways that we don't even realize, we can't be upset if we are, are on this journey and we've been on this journey for a while and we do something that misses the mark. I mean, that happens. So we acknowledge it, we own up to it, and then we keep moving forward. And that's how we do things. I, you know, let's not make it about ourselves. Like my, yes, I might, I might be embarrassed in this moment. I, I messed up. Let's, let's pull it together and let me, let me figure out what happened and keep moving forward. Um, there is, I know we all have different religious backgrounds and I was raised with the Bible. And there is a part in there where I think it's Paul. He says, not that I have already attained, but this one thing I do. I press toward press on press. Just keep pressing. Yeah. And I, I just hope for the teachers who are listening, the people who are listening, that that is an encouragement. Because I think um, it's just hard. It's, it's all hard, you know, but it's necessary, the work. Um, and I think that for me, I'm going to, I'm committed to learning more about culturally responsive uh, teaching. And when I took that workshop with you, I think I was really inspired about just thinking about the idea of thinking of, I don't know if you said it like this, but in my mind, you know, thinking of these children sitting in front of me as this whole world, you know, of um, who they are, the, the way they're parented, the way they're, you know, the, the food they eat, the, the traditions they celebrate, um, and thinking about how I'm a whole person and my four children are these. And then the idea of an educator looking at my own children in that way I don't know how anybody could not want to teach this way, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, there's just the way you presented it in the workshop. There's just it's so logical. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it addresses that idea of I do value each one of you. And the way that the way my appreciation for you is going to manifest is I'm going to learn you. And then I. You know, I'm going to try to move myself out of the way and help you shine, you know, more of a facilitator. Yes. You know, when I was, it, that reminds me of what my first year in the classroom. And I was just in survival mode, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I was not, and I was teaching at a school that was pre K through 12. And right around that middle school year, I just, mm -hmm. I, I was having a rough time. And because it went pre-K through 12, I had, sometimes I had siblings across several grades. I remember I had three siblings in three different classes and they were mannerable and they were quiet. They didn't say much. So I said, okay, I'm just going to concentrate on getting through the class. Thank goodness they're right. fine. I'm not going to really worry about them because I know that they're going to be good. 
And then we had our parent teacher conference and well, our um, open house night and their mom came to my class during my off period. She, you know, she was all, she had three kids there. So she was right, right, right. in the school, she and the dad. And we sat and talked and she talked to me about all three of her children, how different they were, their different needs, their, the things that excited them. And I could just see her eyes just sparkling with pride with her children. And in that moment, I realized I'm missing an opportunity with these children. I'm not, I'm not really seeing them. I'm thinking about how am I gonna get through the day? And there are children in my class who are coming ready for meaningful experiences. And I'm just trying to get through the day. That's not fair to them. And that was the point when I really started to see my students. I really started mm. to see them. Well, that's beautiful and inspirational. That's what we, that's what we need to do. Um, I hope you'll come back again. Sure. And I, I want to make it very clear that I am a student of yes. pedagogies. So I'm yes, yes. Of culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally responsive pedagogy, culturally sustaining pedagogy. I am, a, I hope to be a lifelong student. Of that. Sure, sure. All of us. <laughs> but you're at least way far ahead of us. <laughs> so it's like me teaching clarinet when I first started teaching. <laughs> I was like, I'm two lessons ahead of you. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> oh, gosh, I was the worst. I have to say this because I would always say, we'd be like, Miss Smith. I was Miss Smith. Miss Smith, what's the fingering for a B flat? And I'd be like, well, what would you do if you were at home and you had that question? You would just look in your book. I can't be here all the time telling you the answers because I don't know the answer. <laughs> 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 oh, my gosh. Ah, those were the days. <laughs> but I, I appreciate you um, being here and helping me uh, on my journey uh, to kind of shed my bias and look for more ways to connect with students. Well, thank and you so, for inviting me here. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Come back again. All right. Come back again. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Louie, when she said, who wants to open up to someone who doesn't even see them? That was a much needed wake up call for me. I have to ask myself, do I make students feel like I look past them without really seeing them? Or do they sense that I care about who they really are? This could make all the difference in the world to students. And so I'm going to make more effort to demonstrate how much I value each child within reason, remember. <laughs> like I mentioned earlier, Head to the episode page at bit.ly slash musicedamplified to find out more about Dr. Batiste, including an upcoming world music pedagogy course this summer that sounds really great. And speaking of courses, if you're interested in any of my upcoming First Steps in Music or Conversational Solfege online fame certification courses this April, July, and August, please contact me at musicedwithmissy at gmail.com. Or head over to Music Ed with Missy on Facebook or Instagram to find out more. 
The Music Ed Amplified podcast theme music was composed and performed by my husband, Jeremy Strong, who also helps produce the podcast, and my second-born son, Owen Strong. It would be wonderful if you would subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen, and if you share it with others, that would be fantastic. As always, thank you for spending time with me. I hope that you've been encouraged, supported, and inspired and that you are motivated to reflect on your philosophy and practice. I'll see you next time, but until then, keep doing all you can to create a more musical, thoughtful, and just world for your students, their families, and your community. 